Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music there's nothing better than discovering a terrific new band even for grizzled veterans like us i'm greg cott of the chicago tribune and i'm jim dirigatis from wbez and columbia college we dig up a batch of buried treasures to share and review the new album by singer-songwriter john hyatt that's coming up on sound opinions From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Jim, we're coming to the end of the summer concert season, and as longtime concert goers, we know that with the good comes the bad. In fact, tragedy broke out last week at the Indiana State Fair Sugarland concert when a stage collapsed during a storm, leaving five dead and dozens more injured. But many less extreme incidents are also caused by fans themselves. Everyone has heard stories about drinking, drugs, violence at shows, in general, really bad behavior. And they aren't just a bummer for the concert goers, but also for the artists themselves. They risk earning bad reputations and being banned from venues. So some acts are taking steps to control their crowds. We're talking about groups like OAR and Fish, who rely heavily on touring for their bread and butter. They've posted open letters to fans and recruited volunteers to keep the peace at their shows. Now, John Jurgensen recently wrote about this idea of the fan code of conduct in the Wall Street Journal, and he joins us now. John, tell us. How widespread is the idea of a code of conduct? Well, these guidelines about fan behavior, I think, are pretty limited in scope, you know, as far as things that are put into writing. But among bands that have a certain reputation that their fans carry along with them, you know, fans who have a reputation for partying and and getting boisterous at the shows, I think the concerns about behavior are, are pretty widespread. The guidelines don't really have any teeth, though, right? It's just basically, please behave, don't screw things up for yourselves and for us. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not as if you sign a contract when you buy a ticket or anything. It's more like a guideline for behavior at these shows. And, and I think what they're really hoping is that once fans understand that the band members who they you know worship and idolize feel strongly about this, that the fans will take it upon themselves to police themselves and police their fellow fans. You know, you recognize in your piece, as these bands are recognizing, the fundamental fact that the person leading the group on stage is in control, even if it may not look that way, of 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people. What he or she does really can set the tone, right? Yeah, they set the tone and they address the audience directly. However, they are not 
that much in control of what happens outside of shows, and, and right. often that's where the publicized problems happen. Um, I think it's a source of real frustration for these bands that their name is besmirched or tainted when these kind of incidents happen, and yet there's not all that much they can really do. Right, so, so you have this weird problem for bands. No rock person, no artist of any kind, wants to be seen as giving orders. In the last year of the Grateful Dead's touring existence with Jerry Garcia, they were beginning to have some, some real troubles at those concerts, and Garcia said to Dennis McNally, the longtime Dead manager, you know, I, I don't want to give orders. And we've seen, Greg and I have seen everybody from Al Jorgensen of Ministry to Eddie Vedder do this sort of thing. Just say, hey, people, we all want to have a good time here. Be cool to each other. Don't do stupid things. But you got to do that in a way that doesn't sound like a kindergarten teacher, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's the ultimate antithesis of being a rock star, right? But it gets to a certain point where they have to live in the real world. They have to do business. And if they have fans who are living in a, you know, a make-believe world of, of partying and dealing and shakedown street sales, uh, it can really kind of throw the whole thing off the rails. So as you mentioned, you know, even at the end, which is kind of a tragic coda to the Grateful Dead story that, you know, even, even Garcia had to sign his name to this letter that said, fans, hey, deadheads, get it together. Let's, let's pull, you know, let's, let's not lose our heads. Well, it, it followed him around, John. I mean, I remember the Grateful Dead offshoot band. After the Dead had basically imploded after Garcia's death, there was an attempt to reunite with some of the members and, and play a show in Grand Park in Chicago. And, and Grand Park eventually decided, you know, we don't want to have this type of band playing in our most prime piece of property on the lakefront because of their history. So their history yeah. came back and bit them and, and basically cost them a payday. Uh, you saw this a lot with hip-hop in, in, in the 80s and 90s, still going on to this day to a degree. Certain bands won't get booked because of you know an alleged history of violence or rowdy behavior or the kind of element that they may draw to the show. So what, what, what kind of bands are we seeing today where this is impacting their bottom line, their ability to make a living? You know, I think you have kind of a dual track, especially with the jam bands, which is largely what I focused on in the story because, you know, they have a lot of the partying issues. But there's kind of a parallel thing happening where a band like Fish, I think in the public eye, still has this reputation for, oh, everyone's going to come in and there's going to be hundreds of arrests and, you know, drug and alcohol sweeps. That's sort of the public perception and all the times the press perception. Meanwhile, promoters and, and venues have realized that Fish and, to, extent, to some extent, Dave Matthews' band are some of the most well-run machines in the touring business. We're talking to John Jurgensen of the Wall Street Journal, who wrote a fascinating article called The Taming of the Fans about codes of conduct and the problems there. You hit also in the article a little bit on kind of the professionalization of the rave scene. We're beginning to see what used to be these spontaneous outdoor or warehouse dance parties becoming more like festivals like Lollapalooza or Coachella. Electric Daisy being the big example, and there was a 15-year-old girl who died there last year. What's happening in that world? I think it speaks to the professionalization of the concert industry in general. I mean, think about how it used to be years ago when you'd go to a concert, you wouldn't necessarily know if the band was showing up at, you know, on stage at a certain time. Now everything you can pretty much expect that the set times that are announced are going to be stuck to and, you know, things run kind of like clockwork. And I think that definitely extends to the rave scene as well. Um, Electric Daisy, as you mentioned, is definitely the, the kind of boogeyman of the rave culture. You know, it's one thing to have kids go to the hospital for, for alcohol intake, it might be another thing when you have a death 
on your hands, as Electric Daisy has in a couple instances. You know, you have a couple hundred thousand people coming in, um, some of them taking ecstasy, and those odds are tough. Well, it's it's interesting because the comparison between, say, a sporting event, you know, not just baseball, football, but look at NASCAR, where you're talking about tens of thousands of people, and you're responsible for their behavior in in that event, but you can't control what they do before, can't control what they do after. I think a lot of these bigger events are able to continue to do what they do, despite you know maybe some not so pleasant behavior, because there's a lot of money on the table. It's not the same with say a rave promoter. It's a scale of economy here, and I think it's uh, isn't it really about money talks? Yeah, and you, you saw a little bit of that happening with with Electric Daisy when they moved from uh, they couldn't be held in Los Angeles because of the problems you were talking about, and they went to Las Vegas this year, and you had the you know the mayor essentially welcoming them with open arms, saying basically, "Well, we can handle it. You know, we're we're used to this kind of thing here," and that sort of typifies the idea that. If you bring a lot of money and a lot of people into into a town um, and they know what to expect, I think you are going to be welcome. Every one of these markets has so many layers of bureaucracy, police authority, business interests being involved in these events that it's it's very it's very opaque and it varies from from place to place in so many different ways. Some parking lots are owned by the state parks department. Some parking lots are owned by a private corporation, and some are owned by a city. So. You never necessarily know who's going to be on the hook, whose jurisdiction it is, also behind the scenes, who's going to be profiting off of it and who might be willing to look the other way. John, let, let me ask you a question that you didn't deal with. Years ago, I had written a, about the dilemma of concert security and crowd behavior. I had talked to uh, the head of an insurance company, one of the biggest in America, who said, we would rather insure almost anything other than a concert. So as a result, a lot of concert promoters have to self-insure. Is that still the case today? I mean, because that really makes it difficult for anybody to ever get into the promotion business, and, and it edges out the few that are, that are left struggling to do it. That is a contributing factor to this homogenization of, of the promoter scene. You look at you know, a live nation who is mounting the, uh, you know, the lion's share of these big national tours, you know, it's not just insurance, but they're also the ones paying these big guarantees to the artists. It's this kind of massive payouts that you have to write into your business plan that prevent anyone from really operating higher than a, you know, a club and theater level. John Jurgensen is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. John, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and from time to time here on Sound Opinions, we like to do a show we call Buried Treasures, digging deep into that omnipresent milk crate full of releases on each of our desks, right, Greg? There's the stuff mm-hmm. we have to write about because it's big and it's newsworthy. Then there are those records we're just dying to talk about and share with other people simply because we love them, even when many other people haven't heard of them yet. Under the radar releases, Jim, uh, they are unjustly overlooked. These are the records we live for, those undiscovered gems that just blow us away. The first record I want to talk about is from a band that I have been a fan of for a long time. 
Antietam out of New Jersey, your old stomping grounds. I was at their very first gig ever, which they played with Yola Tango, their a- first gig. And you were blown away by the guitar player, I bet, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tara Key is a monster guitar player. All this new wave of, of female guitarists these days, screaming females, Marissa Paternoster, Carrie Brownstein, whether they know it or not, they owe a debt to Tara Key. She is a woman possessed on the stage, one of the great guitar players of the last 20, 30 years that I've seen in a live setting. I mean, I've seen her fingers bleeding on stage. She's <laughs> playing those strings so hard and so passionately. Antietam has been making records for basically the last three decades, uninterrupted. It's a trio with uh, Tara Key on guitar, her husband and bassist, Tim Harris, and drummer Josh Medell. Tenth Life is one of their most direct, hard-hitting records yet in that career. Began out of Louisville, now in New Jersey. This is a record that I think defines the band at its most concise and direct. Ten fat-free songs emphasizing melody as well as that Tara Key guitar playing underpinning it all. Here's a track from it. It's called Number Days from Antietam's Tenth Life on Sound Opinions. Number Days from Antietam, one of my buried treasures on Sound Opinions. Jim, what have you got for us? That was a fine pick, Greg. I am going to stay close to home for my first choice. Cave is a band from Chicago, although originally formed in Columbia, Missouri. Two albums came out. Two albums were fine. Two albums were unexceptional. The third one knocks it out of the park. The band does everything right on this record. Now, like a lot of groups in indie rock, they are taking the basic sound of Noi. We have talked about Noi on the show quite a bit. We had Michael Roter, one of the founders of Noi on the show. That German driving rhythm, the motorique beat, the sound of speeding down the Autobahn, and those ethereal 
echoed clouds of guitar. A wonderful sound. We've seen everybody try to duplicate that sound. You can duplicate the ingredients, but there's always something missing. One thing that a lot of bands miss, I think, is the melody. And Cave writes wonderful melodies. So it's not just these droning hypnotic tracks. They're really strongly melodic. They worm their way into your consciousness. The other thing is, Noi was always about moving forward when they were working in Germany in the early 70s. And Cave brings a lot of other elements from weird little twitchy post-rock digital noise in the background to 60s psychedelic organ. That's something Noi never had, and, and now you realize they should have. I think that this is the best twist on this formula since Stereolab. I'm going to play the first song on this new third album, Never Endless. This is WUJ by Cave. W.U.J. from the album Never Endless by Cave on Sound Opinions. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we've got more buried musical treasures, and then we'll review the new album by longtime songwriter John Hyatt.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We are running down some of our buried treasures of recent months, records underneath the mainstream radar that we think deserve your attention. That is I Don't Love You No More from one of my buried treasures, a record called The Outsiders Are Back by Kings Go Forth. A Milwaukee group. Now, this record came out last year, but I've been looking for an opportunity to highlight it on the show. And I think, what better time than Buried Treasures? Because this group, again, doesn't play out much. So if you have an opportunity to see Kings Go Forth live, definitely go see it. A uh, 10-piece multicultural band out of Milwaukee. Started out as kind of a studio project by Andy Noble, who had been playing in punk and ska bands in Milwaukee in the 80s then drifted into DJing, record collecting, and running a record store, which specialized in soul and funk 45s. This guy is an archivist and a connoisseur of the first order. He's kind of in that same pocket as the Numero group out of Chicago, digging up these obscure soul 45s from the 60s, 70s, and highlighting the quality of that music. And he brings some of that into King's Go Forth. The key to this band was his meeting the vocalist at his record store, one Black Wolf, a.k.a. Jesse Bilal. Now, Black Wolf was in the original underground Milwaukee soul scene in the 60s. I mean, there was no overground Milwaukee soul scene in the 60s or ever since. But there was some really cool music that came out of that scene, and, and he was one of the survivors of that scene and still very much interested in remaining active. So once Noble found his vocalist, he was able to form a group around him. Kings Go Forth was the result. Luakabop, a New York-based label, heard one of their early singles and signed the band to a deal. They put out The Outsiders Are Back last year. But it's worth highlighting that classic single that Luakabop was so excited about one day. This is the song that put them on the map. I think it's a brilliant distillation of what they do so well, driving rhythms with a fantastic black wolf vocal over the top on Sound Opinions.
That was One Day by Kings Go Forth, one of Greg Cott's buried treasures. Greg, I'm going to go now to Shabazz Palaces, the first hip-hop act ever signed by Seattle's Sub Pop Records, and their debut album, Black Up, which is finally out after a couple of appetizers they've given us. This is a new act with a long pedigree. Ishmael Butler, better known as Butterfly, was a member of the groundbreaking hip-hop crew Diggable Planets. He also was the driving force in Cherry Wine, one of my favorite overlooked hip-hop groups from the last decade. I stand by that record. Now he's adopting another identity, Palisir Lazaro, okay? And there's very little information they're putting out about this band. They want it to remain a mystery, not a lot of interviews. It's a dark, sinister vibe. Who else is doing that and getting a lot of attention for it right now in hip-hop? Odd Future, okay? This kind of horror movie, gothic, hip-hop musical backing. But I think where Shabazz Palaces is going is somewhere very different. They're turning back to the trip-hop sound of Bristol, England, and groups like Massive Attack. It's not just horror movie heaviness. And in pairing this very dark, sinister, and at times claustrophobic sound with lyrics that are the exact opposite, they've got something special. There is a long tradition in African-American music of visionary musicians talking about space and the liberation that can be found there. I'm talking about Albert Eiler or or Sun Ra or or George Clinton. There's a lot of trippy sci-fi weirdness going on here. Butterfly is imagining in space there is no racism. You know, we are all equal. We can reinvent ourselves and reinvent society. It's that kind of imagination that makes this Black Up album really special. Listen to what's going on in this track that I'm going to play. Recollections of the Wraith by Shabazz Palaces on Sound Opinions. One thing. Clear some space out so we can space out. Clear some space out so we can space out. Clear some space out so we can space out. Clear some space out so we can space out. Starlight, advance on your mind. Anticipation, excitement to climb. Information, choices of sensation. New rules you can play with, blues you can shake them. No ironies arise, no predictable surprise, no sarcastic satires. Just ancient patient being, seeing to it you get high. New off the spaceship, dipped in punctuation. Always cracking, get your crew up with your do up. It's certain to be working when you flirting with it to us. The kicks involved, the fix evolves, the mix revolves. Dilemma of this destiny, cliche raps getting solved. The ghetto sounds sprawl, it bounce wall to wall, and throw us and y'all. It's music that chews up, disprove it, we do it, you lose it, it's crucial. All we do is answering the call to tonight. Tonight. Up again, I wish you would 
You wish you could. You think you should, but you don't and you won't. You have another drink, stop and think. Look, you was with the crew to get that ship to sink. We don't ride, ride in the club. We dance, though. Take a chance. You know that we got to dazzle. Recollections of the Wraith from Shabazz Palace is one of Jim DeRigatis' buried treasures. Good choice, Jim. I'm going to go to a Chicago band next, 11th Dream Day, that I have loved for for many, many years. Almost no one talks about them anymore because uh, they make a record about once every five years, and they play exactly three shows uh, to support that record, and then they go back to their everyday lives. So it's a wonderful way to run a band in a lot of ways because they do it purely for the love of making music together. Now, they're all involved in other musical projects. It's not that they're not busy. Guitarist Rick Rizzo has got his own solo projects. He's a schoolteacher in Chicago by day. Janet Bean is in a number of other bands, including uh, Freakwater. The bass player, Doug McCombs, is in Tortoise. So they do a lot of things besides 11th Dream Day. But every few years, they get together and make an 11th Dream Day record, and it's often quite great. The new one, I think, is as good as anything they've done since the very earliest days of the band. It's called Riot Now. And the song I'm going to highlight is Satellite. It features one of the newer members of the band. The core trio of Rizzo, Bean, and McCombs has been together since the 80s. Mark Greenberg, who has been in various bands over the years, has become a mainstay of the band as well recently. And his synthesizer playing is a real key to this track. When I hear it, Jim, I'm thinking of Per Ubu and Alan Ravenstein and Mm. some of those eerie soundscapes that he would give to those early Ubu records. The combination of Rizzo's guitar and Greenberg's synthesizer and then Janet Bean's manic drumming. She doesn't do a lot of drumming. Every five years she comes and drums the hell out of, <laughs> out of 11th Dream Day records, and she does that here as well. It's Satellite from 11th Dream Day on Sound Opinions.
11th Dream Day with Satellite from the new record Riot Now, one of my buried treasures. Jim, what's next for you? Greg, I'm going to chill things out a bit. In fact, I'm going to go to the genre known as Chill Wave. I am not a huge fan of this, but I think that Washed Out is a prime example of what this genre can be at its very best. Ernest Green essentially has been a one-man bedroom band, making this spacey, chilled-out music, music for the beach, if you will, but not when it's really hot and sunny, more more like at night when it's quiet and you're sitting around listening to the waves, okay? You know, the first two EPs got a lot of buzz in the indie rock community, and now his first full album is out, Within and Without. It's been produced by Ben Allen, who did some amazing things with Animal Collective on uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion. Ernest is starting to get some attention. He did the theme for Portlandia, that cool hipster comic show, and so everybody's turned on him. They're saying this album is too clean, too pristine, too sleepy. You know, I love it. It reminds me of those early days of techno in the 90s when you had bands like Ultramarine or The Orb really making these wonderful soundscapes that were like somewhere between Genesis and Steve Hillage and the cutting edge of modern technology. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Ernest Green washed out cares if he's hip. I think he's just interested in making beautiful music. And lest I be accused of forgetting to mention this, Eno-esque, okay? Just Uh a little bit. Ding. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta be said. Gotta be said. Here is Washed Out from the new album Within and Without with a song called Amor Fatih on Sound Opinions. Oh, 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 
That's Amor Fati on Sound Opinions from Washed Out, one of Jim DeRogatis' buried treasures. And you can share your own buried treasures on the air by calling 888-859-1800. You can also email us at interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. We're going to be back with our final Undiscovered Gems and then from the new to the veteran. We're going to review the latest from John Hyatt. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we are running down some of our buried treasures of the last few months. The track you're hearing right now is Lever Pulled Down from Sam Phillips. She's got a new record out called Solid State Songs from the Long Play. Phillips has been around since the 80s. She made a bunch of records with her uh, then-husband, T-Bone Burnett, for a major label at one time, and had a pretty successful career. Wonderful folk pop with a twist of psychedelic orchestral pop in there. Now she's on her own. She's basically become a one-woman record industry, pulled everything in-house on her website. In 2009 and 10, she offered a year-long subscription to her fans on her website, and there she released five EPs and a full-length album, 42 tracks in all. Solid State pulls 13 songs from that collection of music, and I think it is a wonderful record. Definitely worth hearing. Haven't been hearing a lot from Sam Phillips lately? Well, it's time to catch up. Again, the songwriting is stellar. What really pulls me in is the voice. She makes every word count. It's kind of a, almost a deadpan, droll vocal style, never overexerting herself in terms of shouting at you, 
But creating a world around those words and around those melodies that she writes, ornamenting them with a little bit of guitar, a string section, keyboards, percussion, and then giving it a little twist that makes it seem just a little bit off, just a little bit weird. I love those little touches that she puts into these very subtle songs, talking about everyday life, but with a real kind of odd twist to each lyric. Here's a song that she re-recorded from her early days. She had the song that I'm going to play on an earlier record from the 90s. Now she's giving it more of an Eastern, almost mystical vibe on Solid State. It's called Lying. It's from Sam Phillips on Sound Opinions. Lying from Sam Phillips on Sound Opinions. The record is called Solid State, My Last Buried Treasure. Jim, what's your finale? Craig, I'm going to close out with the record Goodbye Bread by Ty Siegel. He is a singer, songwriter, one-man band, lo-fi artist from Orange County, California, who uh, has garnered a lot of comparisons to the late Jay Retard, in part because he started out as a real garage rocker in a band called the Epsilons, and there is that kind of Trog's Kingsman vibe to some of what he does. However, I think there's also a lot more subtlety. Jay Retard was about losing control. Ty Siegel is, at heart, a uh, singer-songwriter. There are touches of Nick Drake in what he's doing. There are touches of Big Star, that kind of regal power pop. Mm. It's just that he's recording them kind of primitively and pairing them with the occasional lo-fi, fuzzed-out freak-out. I really love this album. I love it from its hangdog cover all the way through to the end of each track. 
beautiful stuff that kind of, you know, at first I was just like, I don't know, this is ramshackle, this is hard to get a handle on. Mm -hmm. I kept coming back and back and back and loving it more each time I played it. Here is a song called Comfortable Home, parentheses, A True Story, by Ty Siegel from his new long player, Goodbye Bread, on Sound Opinions. That was Comfortable Home, A True Story by Ty Siegel on Sound Opinions. For a full list of our buried treasures, go to soundopinions.org. That's Train to Birmingham from John Hyatt, his latest album, Dirty Jeans and Mudslide Hymns, his 20th studio album and 7th studio album since 2000. He's been pretty prolific lately compared to the rest of his career. Hyatt, Indiana-born singer-songwriter, been going strong since the 70s. It really took a while for him to develop his, his voice. He started out playing rock and roll kind of in a bar band setting, positioned himself as sort of a new wave artist in the late 70s, early 80s, sort of the angry young man answer from North America to England's Graham Parker and Elvis Costello. 
They had a really fine record in that vein called Riding with the King in 1983. But it was really with his 1987 album, Bring the Family, where he found his voice, the one he's been using ever since. That record was recorded with a stellar lineup that included Ry Cooter, Nick Lowe, and Jim Keltner, with Hyatt basically doing the the songwriting and lead singing. And it, it sort of set that classic roots style that he's been operating in ever since. Combination of country, R&B, soul, early rock and roll. Dirty Jeans and Mudslide Hymns recorded with his touring band, basically. Let's play a track from it before we review it. It's called Damn This Town from John Hyatt on Sound Opinions. That is Damn This Town from the new John Hyatt album, Dirty Jeans and Mudslide Hymns. Greg, you cannot knock this guy as a songwriter. The the wry lyrics and the kind of timeless melodies that work in many different genres has attracted people covering him from Bonnie Raitt, Ronnie Millsap and Dr. Feelgood to Iggy Pop, Three Dog Night and the Neville Brothers. Now, on his own, it is very easy to kind of take him for granted. I mean, look at the title of his album. Dirty jeans and mudslide hymns, right? He's like a pair of old pants, right? Mm-hmm. They're so comfortable, you're never going to get rid of them. And I think it's easy to take Hyatt for granted. We really get a sense of how good a songwriter he is when other people cover his work because he is so laid back and casual. But if you spend the time and listen to this album, listen to the timeless themes of the working man existence, the uh, family, the struggles to find meaning in life, there's great depth and poignance, and it goes down real easy. On the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, I gotta say, it's a Buy It record, a really fine record, whether this is the first Hyatt or the 20th that you're gonna own. Hyatt's been amazingly consistent over the years, Jim. I don't think he ever has made a true stinker of an album. I think he's made a handful of classics. This is not one of them. Uh, that doesn't mean it's a bad record. I think there's a few instances here where he sort of resorts to these sort of craftsman-like genre exercises. You know, you've got the car song and the train song, 
and the straight-up pop song, Love That Girl. But when he goes a little deeper and pushes himself just a little bit more, that's when we're getting into, into the Hyatt territory that I love. You know, he's got that wolfish voice. It almost seems like he should be telling a joke every other line. But he can write some really serious stuff as well. Hold on for your love. That's like a post-apocalyptic nightmare that I've thought about for days after listening to it. It really gave me the, the shivers. And, and there was a beautiful dreamlike song called Adios to California that, again, finds him digging a little deeper than usual. So adios to California Nothing to do but turn around I always thought there's someone coming for you Only way you leave this town I'll take a uh, I Love Trains, I Love Cars, I Love Waitresses song from John Hyatt over one from Bruce Springsteen any day. Oh, I don't know about that, but I mean, you know, Hyatt is a guy who, when he gives himself a little bit more room to experiment, dig a little deeper than beyond the craftsman-like genre exercise, because the fact that he is such a highfalutin songwriter that is respected by so many peers allows him to do those genre exercises, sometimes at the expense of the deeper, more personal stuff that I think really defines him. On this album, he gets it about half right. I'm going to give it a burn it. All right, that's one burn it and one buy it for the new John Hyatt. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Jim, next week we are going to do a classic album dissection. We are going to look at Neil Young's 1979 masterpiece, Rust Never Sleeps. Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions was produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn with assistance from Annie Minoff and our intern, Kobe Ashpiss. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, this is Andy Beer. Really loving the new album by Jay-Z and Kanye West, Watch the Throne. You know, a lot of people want to hate on the fact that they are so braggadocious and multi-multi-millionaires and really have the greatest lives ever, but they also back it up with great music. Really attention to details and all the beats. Kanye's working with people like Pete Rock, Q-Tip. All these guys know what they're doing, and they wouldn't uh, put a turkey on the disc there. So I think you should definitely check it out if you like urban music at all. Uh, don't really read the headlines. That doesn't really matter. All that matters in the end of the day is if it's a good record or not. And I, I give it four down. Andy's out of five. So thanks, Greg and Jim. Love the show. This is Andy Dare signing off. Bye. Lift off, taking my coat off Showing my tattoos, I'm such a show off huh. I feel the pain, I'm letting it roll off I got the whole city, they about to go off How many is with me up in the How many people want to roll on me Like you know Hi, 
Hi, this is Ted calling from Chicago. I heard your show. I believe it was from the Once soundtrack where you had a duet, male and female, and wow, it kind of blew me away, just their uh, emotion. Take this and Kimball and point it home. We still got time. Juxtapose that with Lollapalooza, the Foo Fighters screaming into the microphone, just not so musically. I don't know, given that the market's down 600 points, I think if uh, the Foo Fighters had stock, I would be a seller at this point. Thanks for all of your great shows. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Travis from Oxnard, California. Your promo mentioned Colin with a band that maybe you thought was you know worth recommending to your audience, and got me thinking about this uh, band from Ventura, California, called Franklin for short. They have this sort of psychedelic Southern California beach rock sound. They had a great record called Dark Cloud. A great song off of it would be Electric Blanket. Don't you wanna go back on top? I hope maybe somebody checks it out and gives a listen. They're really great. Thanks. Bye. Hey, this is Ellen Rendell from Wilmington, Delaware. And um, it's kind of a funny comment, but I hear just the comment part of your show every Monday night as I'm driving home from work. And uh, it's about all I get to hear. I get home and it's Monday night football. Sorry, guys. And I just want to tell you that I enjoy that you put them on so much. I love to hear what people have to say and that you are willing to share all the criticism that you get. Some people slam you, but it's always good. And um, thanks so much. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.